0: You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil.
1: Amazing times where you're you're actually in the garage during the race. You know, you're, you're part of all that excitement. You're under the podium when the Ferrari team wins. You know, you're celebrating your driver. It, it's, it's a crazy world of, you know, of, of people, this traveling circus that travels yeah. the world pretty much nonstop from March to November um, and goes to four continents. So within five years, i managed to work with four world champion drivers. I think it is an incredible sport, and there's, inc- there's a, you know, there's a real passion for for people who are F1
0: fans. Hello, you're very welcome to an Expat Live special. You just heard my guest there, Annie Kennedy, the international sports marketeer, talking about her time working for Ferrari in Formula One. Annie left Ireland in the 90s straight after studying in DCU. Since then, Annie has had an eventful and high octane career. Working in sports marketing in some great companies, including UEFA, FIFA, Eurosport, Formula One, and with Shell on the Ferrari Formula One team, and also with Shell throughout Africa. She tells some great tales of life working as an expat throughout the world. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you now. Welcome to the podcast, Annie. You have been all over the world. You're a proper expat lives person. You've worked in London, Switzerland, you've worked in Africa. You've worked with Formula One, Eurosport and loads more. You are in Switzerland now. You're based in Switzerland, right?
1: I'm based in Switzerland, yeah. And and funnily enough, for somebody who who travels a lot and, and has worked all over the world, I've been in Switzerland for 18 years now. But but interestingly, always in roles where I'm traveling a lot.
0: And before that, you were in London. Am I right in saying that? How long have you been out of Ireland? Have you been out of Ireland is longer than you were in Ireland?
1: Yeah. Do you know what? It was never planned, but I, when I left Ireland the day after I finished my last exam in my finals um, in college, I left Ireland and I never came back. Wow. Um, and it was never planned. I mean, I remember coming back for for our graduation, you know, and we, we went to the same same college. So Good we saw you. each other graduation. Yeah. And um, and then two days after graduation, I was gone again um, and and I moved to France and so then lived in France for, for three years, lived in London for two years, and I've been in Switzerland now for 18 years. And I always thought that I'd come back to Ireland at some point. And now, now I don't really know. It's really hard to know because it, the, Ireland changes a lot. You change a lot. And, and in the end, you're, you're a different person. And do you
0: notice that then? Do you, do you feel like a foreigner now when you come back to Ireland?
1: A little bit. I mean, my, my family slag me all the time and tell me I'm more Swiss than the Swiss, which... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that's that's not always a compliment from them. And <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah I, I, I find I find Ireland very different uh, from the Ireland that I left, you know, and, uh, and and I suppose you become used to a completely different way of working and living and and behaving even.
0: In your blood, isn't it? I, you're, you're a family, you're a family of you're travellers.
1: Well, It's funny. Yeah, it was only when I was when I was thinking about um, about this this chat that we were having and I was I was doing a bit of kind of, of looking at, you know, our, our family and and we wouldn't be we wouldn't be kind of known for being a mad traveling family. But I realized like between me and my siblings, we've got about eight languages um, and lot, from lots of different countries. So there's Chinese, there's Japanese, there's Greek, there's Portuguese, French, German, Spanish. Um, Irish, of course, um, and that's really just from from all of us just living in lots of different countries. So you, you know, I have a huge family for Urgal. I have ten yeah. siblings, and uh, and I suppose by the time by the time I left home, that we were already on about four continents, wow. um, and that was that was at the age of eighteen. And then I had uh, I I think a huge influence on all of us was um, one of my aunts, my mother's sister um she she was a spanish teacher she actually was a teacher in ennis for a while and um she she traveled the world she whenever she had had her her holidays you know and she had long holidays being a teacher she was traveling all over the world and she was really passionate about languages so sadly she she died very very young but by the time she died she was fluent in six languages and um and she spoke eight languages and that included Russian, it included Romanian, you know, a, a lot of very random languages for, for a woman from the west of Ireland. So and, and I, I always remember she used to write letters home all the time because she, she for the last 10 years of her life, she lived all over the world in different countries and she used to write letters home to my mother all the time. And she was she was an incredible writer and she was so descriptive and she'd describe people and places and situations and cultures and funny stories of confusions and you know from from language uh, you know errors and things like that and and it really sparked my imagination and i think probably the rest of the family too and i just thought that's really what i want you know i really want to, to have that kind of life
0: in switzerland now where in switzerland are you
1: so i'm in a place called zug um which is it's central switzerland it's it's about half an hour from zurich it's kind of between zurich and lucerne if you've ever heard of Lucerne, yeah, um, so Zug is an interesting place. It's um, it's it's the the low tax haven in the low tax country, you know, of Switzerland. So, so Zug, it, it kind of it attracts a lot of multinationals. It's a bit like the Ireland of Europe. <laughs> Zug is, is the Ireland of Switzerland. <laughs> and um, so so you 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 have one hundred and eighty seven nationalities living in Zug out of a population of less than thirty thousand. Wow. In, 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 the, in the canton or the county of Zug. And um, yeah, it's really multinational, which, which I love about it. And it's, it's in a, a beautiful location. So it's, it's quite low-lying, but it's surrounded by lakes and mountains. Zug is on a lake itself and it's surrounded by mountains. So from every point, you're seeing these beautiful mountain ranges. So, so for example, from our balcony, we can see the Iger, the Monk and the Jungfrau, you know, on wow. a clear day, which are off in the Bernese Oberland um so so yeah b- beautiful place to live I'd, I'd definitely recommend it
0: so is it skiing in the winter and hill walking in the summer
1: yeah I mean so so if you love the outdoors Switzerland is for you if, if you don't like the outdoors I would say you'll die of boredom in Switzerland it's yeah so so if you if you like skiing if you like biking if you like hiking if you're if you like water sports it's it's a it's an amazing place to be and you get you get at least six months of sun in the year. And I I think that's one of the reasons I'm still there is it's near enough to home that I can come home, you know, regularly, see, see family, the family Mm -hmm. that are still in Ireland. But, you know, you have, you have a really good climate. It's, It's a very dry climate.
0: And the three of your jobs mean to me that you must be mad into sport because you've been, you've worked for UEFA, you've worked for Eurosport, and you also work for Formula One.
1: Yeah, and Fergal, I'm really going to disappoint you now. I'm <laughs> I'm not I, I've had every man's dream job like three or four times in my life. <laughs> and and I'm actually not that passionate about sport. I'm I'm really passionate about sports marketing and about sponsorship and about you know the passion that people have for sport. But um but I'm not a, I'm not a mad sports fan. <laughs> Is Maybe. that a terrible thing to say? Not
0: at all. Maybe it makes the jobs easier than you're focusing on the, the marketing side Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. So which one came completely. first? Was it, was it Eurosport first?
1: The first one was Eurosport. And, and it's funny, I, people often ask me, you know, I had a 20 year career in sports marketing. And they say, God, you must have had it. Did you have that planned? And was that was that what you really wanted? I got into Eurosport completely by accident. I was living in Paris. I had just done a year of what's called the EOP. Um, but which which is the the, the European European orientation program yeah, I think yeah. which which a lot of languages and marketing graduates in, in DCU did, and I had worked for Bordish Kiwara and I was I was trying to support Irish um, Irish seafood exporters and when that year was up I was sitting there going what'll I do now you know and uh, and and another Irish friend was working for Eurosboy and she said oh there's a job in in the marketing department are you interested so absolutely. And that's how I got into, into sports marketing. And so I worked in Paris for Eurosport for two years. And then I moved to uh, London and I was there also for two years. Just and, before we um, go to London,
0: then, just before we go to London, quick. So what did you love living in Paris?
1: I absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I think Paris is very special. Um Were you my, like Emily in Paris?
0: Were you like wearing berets and fancy outfits going to work
1: (laughs) do do you know what's funny i was reading about that recently and i was reading about how angry the french were about it but all the stereotypes i read about that are covered in there i came across all of them you know no i i I love paris because it's it, it paris can be whatever you want it to be it can it's everything to everyone and it's it's just it's such a special city it's so beautiful I was I was laughing I was telling someone recently I did I did the bateau mouche. you know you know the boats the boat trips down the river where you have the commentary I did that about 18 times in <laughs> three years did you? and by the end I used to be able to, to 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 give the commentary off by heart You know, with all the tourists and all the visitors I had
0: but, it but is though, I, I... I
1: love Paris I, I would actually go back I'd go back would to you? Paris in a heartbeat yeah, yeah.
0: And what is it? Just it's just magical city. It's it's one of those places you pinching yourself walking along the street going yeah, to work. You're, you're
1: walking along, and you could be you could be in a really rough area of Paris, right, where, you, where people would say don't go there. And you look around, and you see beautiful buildings, and you just you know you pop into a little bakery or a cafe, and the food is just divine. And I think you know but I, what I loved about Paris as well is it's it's all there's a lot of local shops and a lot of local shopping you Mm. go out on a Saturday morning and you wander around and you go to the little veg shop and buy your veg and then you go to the butchers and you know the the French have managed to keep that alive you know just just shopping local and supporting small businesses and I love that about Paris
0: yeah and then so London is is probably a culture shock is it or is it going from one to the other
1: London do you know do you know what's mad is I was really scared before moving to London because I remember I remember thinking god it's going to be a big bad city and you know it's going to be so big I'm going to be overwhelmed and how am I going to survive and, and, and find my place and actually I ended up living right in the center of London in in what's called Noho and Charlotte Street uh-huh. right beside do you know where the BT Tower is yeah and yeah. Um, right beside there and I had an absolute ball for two years i was living in in a shared it was kind of a hovel like it was it, like i wouldn't i wouldn't walk into it now it was like d- disease-ridden kind of horrible place but um
0: great location yeah.
1: though it was a mad location and there were there were five bedrooms and and those bedrooms turned over each one turned over by twice you know during the time i was there and it, we just had some mad people living with us some great experiences and just I walked everywhere I worked in Covent Garden so I'd walk to work I'd walk to go out at night you know walk home and and I was near Regent's Park and I just had a ball I remember Eurosport gave me a moving allowance I think at the time it was probably about 2000 pounds or something to kind of move me from Paris to London. And, you know, you normally you'd use it to buy furniture or you'd use it to set yourself up in yeah. your new place. <laughs> and guess what I spent it on? <laughs> I partied nonstop for about the first four or five months and, and that was my my moving allowance. So it, it certainly allowed me to integrate pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put it to good use to settle in. Yeah. And what were you doing with Eurosport then? So it's. Was-
1: so so when I was in Paris I was um I, I it was it was a marketing role so it was was mainly pre- creating campaigns to promote the channel and okay. and we were you know and 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 to to both to consumers and also to advertisers and we were we were in about 10 countries so everything I was doing we were creating in 10 languages and that was that was really interesting as well because you know, you're 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 translating copy, and you're you're trying to trying to translate meaning and culture and all of that. In London, then I was working on British Eurosport, which is like a, a British feed of the Channel, and we were doing a lot. It was it was much more of a kind of a business to business role where we were doing a lot with the cable operators. And at the time, digital TV had had literally just begun, you yeah. know, but you still had the old cable operators like NTL and Telewest and. And all of these. So we, we were doing a lot to kind of get them to to promote our programming, to to push to to show more programming. So that's pretty much what I was doing. Is
0: that how you got into UEFA then? Through that, your sport? that is. Yeah,
1: you- kind of. Um, I was I was headhunted for, for a role at UEFA and um, just just randomly got a call from a sports headhunter. And, and the, like when you work in sports marketing, it's a really small world, you okay. know, because it's quite specialised and everybody knows each other. So I got a call one day and they said, would you like to move to Switzerland? And I thought, oh, sure, why not? Like, give it a go. So I decided to to take it. I, well, I obviously had to interview and everything. Uh-huh. And I decided to take the job. And I said, I'll do three years and then I'll come back to London. Because I really loved London and, and I was, you know, I was having a ball and I was in my early 20s. And uh, yeah, I planned to go for three years and never came back. 18 years ago. Yeah, I know. Wow. And um, so UEFA was, uh, UEFA was really interesting times. Um, they had just brought all of their kind of commercial department in-house. They, they had outsourced everything to a, an agency and there was a massive scandal. Um, you you might've heard of it. It was a big FIFA UEFA scandal with, with a, an agency called ISL. And it was you know a big corruption scandal that had hit about a year before. So UEFA said, right, we're gonna take everything in-house. And they hired a commercial team, and I was actually the first account manager that UEFA ever hired for that commercial team, working on um, on the European Championships. Um, so I was managing um, three three big clients: McDonald's, Carlsberg, and Continental Tires, and worked on Euro two thousand and four, and prepared for Euro two thousand and eight. Um, and it was it was a
0: where were they? Remind me where they were again.
1: So, so yeah, your two thousand and four was Portugal. Oh yeah. And your two thousand and eight was co-hosted in Switzerland and Austria. Uh, now I left UEFA just before that tournament, but uh, but still still did a lot of a lot of prep in the run up to it. So but that be an amazing
0: experience, was it? Two thousand and four.
1: It, it was incredible. It was incredible, and and actually I was also seconded to FIFA to work on the World Cup in two thousand and six. So I spent a couple of months in um, in Germany and I was wow. I was managing the commercial rights in a stadium there. It was it was a crazy world and and all of my football um, football fan friends and family they they just thought, they thought I was living the dream at the time, <laughs> you know. You're you're literally on a regular basis you're meeting the most famous footballers. I've met Pele, I've met Eusebio, met beckenbauer met all the greats and these would be just at, at regular events and things like that and loads of travel i mean i traveled all over the world with uefa not just for tournaments but also you know mcdonald's was my client and i got to go to chicago a few times and to their headquarters and their conferences got to to travel to russia with carlsberg they were they had just done a big launch of a new brand in russia we were supporting them on something there and um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely amazing. And I was in my mid twenties and doing all this incredible travel. Yeah.
0: And just more of interest do you do you love it then the the traveling part of the job,
1: the travel part, absolutely. And, and I think, I think that'll always have to be a part of any of my jobs. Like I, I've been really lucky that since the word go, you know, since, since I first started my commercials or my, my commercial, my career, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've I've been traveling and 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 maybe I I kind of subconsciously choose roles that will allow me to do that. So twenty twenty has been a bit nuts actually because it's the first time ever that I'm in a role where I'm not traveling. You know? how'd you
0: find that? I know a lot of people that are.
1: Finding I it thought tricky. I'd go. I thought I'd go demented, to be honest, yeah. because because in twenty nineteen I remember I had a five week spell of no travel, and myself and my husband nearly killed each other. And <laughs> and at the end of it, he said. He said, "Do you not have a trip coming up? Because I think it's about time." You know? <laughs> and um, and and so if you if you'd asked me at the start of 2020, you know, would you be able to handle no travel? My last trip in 2020 was end of February to Namibia, wow. and that was a work trip. Um, and I haven't haven't had a work trip since. But I suppose my big thing was one, there's no FOMO because no one else is traveling, and you're missing nothing. Yeah. And two you it's it's something everybody has to do you know we, we have to do it for for the greater good and um you know we're in the middle of a of a major global pandemic and a crisis so so you just got to do it so, so just I actually of, just adapted
0: okay and just out of curiosity then have you found that there's stuff in work that you can now do that you thought you had to do by traveling how do you find it's, it there, there isn't. There
1: isn't. yeah there is and there isn't because um I, I work with 15 African countries and normally I'd be visiting at least 10 of those every year and, and spending about a week there. Um, and that the, the, like being on the ground and personal contact and seeing the people you're working with all the time, it's, it's invaluable. Mm. Now we, yeah, we've everything we've been doing has been virtual. And just to, to let year. people know
0: you're with Shell now and you work in Africa with Shell, with the, with,
1: we, so, Four so points. we have mm-hmm. um, we have a partner that runs um, basically petrol stations in mm-hmm. fifteen countries in Africa, and I'm I'm their key counterpart, if you like. It's it's like a it's like a franchise or a license where yeah. they're they're one partner managing all of that. So, so yeah, I work very closely with them all to help them run their business, to help you know ensure that the business is being run in the way we want. So, if you go into a Shell petrol station in I don't know in the UK or in France you're going to have the same experience as a petrol shell petrol station in Uganda, for example. But yeah, so, so I think 2020, we've been able to do a lot virtually and we've been able to innovate quite quickly, but I think you can't replace human contact. And, Mm. and, and, you know, a lot of my colleagues in Africa have been saying, you know, we, we really want you to come and visit as soon as you can. and, and you know we can catch up and we can talk business
0: so i distracted you there with that question because <laughs> i'm interested to go back to 2004 <laughs> to exactly because yeah. <laughs> um i want to hear about portugal so what did you spend lo- did you have to move to so, portugal or yeah
1: I... so well i learned portuguese as well um oh, wow. so so i spent two years learning portuguese to build up to living in portugal for about two months um and actually working, I was managing a stadium, managing all the commercial rights in a stadium where quite a few local people didn't speak English. Really? So I had to try and get things done. And where done. was that in Portugal? Where were you? That was in Porto.
0: Porto, it
1: was, okay. It was, yeah. And that's really and so interesting. Thinking, so
0: so having the Portuguese you felt was crucial to the job. Yeah,
1: yeah it was. And um, and also just to, to help understand like who, who you're working with because you have a huge team in Portugal on the ground that's delivering and getting the stadiums ready. And, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know, you need to understand, the, you know, the culture, the language, et cetera, to, to be able to work, in, you know, efficiently with them. But Portugal was amazing, like absolutely amazing. Like, it, it, when you're preparing for a big tournament, right, you, you spend a couple of years preparing. And then you're on the ground and the moment you arrive on the ground, you arrive on the ground maybe a month before your first match and you're working, no word of a lie, sometimes you're working 20 hour days. So it's, it sounds really glamorous, but it's its really hard work, but you're having the most incredible experiences ever, like you're, you're getting ready for these matches where you could have 100 million people watching, you know. And, and you're responsible for a lot of things that are happening in that stadium.
0: And are you kind of swept up then in the whole emotion of it? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the passion and the emotion and, the, you know, the, the, the host country, as, as they call it. You know, Portugal was the host country. And I don't think I've ever seen so much passion really? in, in my life. And you probably know that they um, they lost the final. They, they made it to the final and they lost against Greece. And I was in the stadium at the time, and we were all crying our eyes out like it was the emotion was just unreal you know and they they'd worked so hard and gotten so far and then then lost I mean we were we were thrilled to see Greece win, but you know, know, when you're in that country and, yeah. and there's so much riding on
0: it. I remember you telling me a great story before. Was that during the Euros about, you know, the level of detail? I, I you know, I think people find it really interesting. So when you say you're looking after a stadium, the my, level my, of detail. My perimeter
1: boards and things exactly. like that. yeah, Because it's so, so interesting. So, so one of the things on the marketing side, you're responsible for all the commercial rights delivery in a stadium. And when you're a sponsor of a major tournament like that, um, one of the biggest things you're paying for, right, one of the, the most valuable rights you're paying for is the exposure on TV to hundreds of millions of people of your brand. And most of what people are seeing are the perimeter boards, you know, the, 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 the advertising boards that you see around a stadium. What you don't realize is that there's a, there's a science, there's a huge amount of detail and science behind how that exposure works. So every second of full exposure of, let's say, a Coca-Cola logo in, in one of those matches has a value to it. And so at the end of the tournament, you know, you, so you, you have to kind of guarantee a certain amount of exposure for your sponsors. And at the end of the tournament, they'll get a report. It'll be broken down into how many seconds and what, what the quality of the logo was, et cetera, and how well it was visible. And of course, these were the days before you had digital boards. So they're all static. So what we would have to do as, you know, know, the head of the commercial side in the stadium, we'd the the morning of the match or the day before the match, sometimes you'd go to the OB van, the outdoor broadcast van, and you'd have the match director um, working with you. And you'd be viewing from camera one, you'd be viewing all of the perimeter boards after they're set up. Now, camera one in those days, you know, the coverage of a match was fairly basic. So camera one would cover 80 percent of the match. So you're basically looking at these boards and you've got you're on radio and you've got a guy on the ground and you're basically getting him to move the boards. It could be moving the boards by, you know, half a foot or something so that it looks much better on camera and the logo is much better, um, much better featured. But then what you're responsible for is during the match is making sure that nothing happens to those boards. So they're like your babies, you know. And so you get mad stuff where people would throw something out of the crowd and they'd land on cover a board or a flag or something. And I had, I had a couple of mad experiences. One was where the match had just kicked off and there was a photographer down at the goal line and he had just set up all his gear. He'd opened all his camera bags and set up all his gear and he flung one of these bags, right, this big camera bag. He flung it over the perimeter board and it was covering the whole McDonald's logo. And I was literally I was looking at it from the other side of the, the pitch going, oh, my God, because if, if that sits there, it sits there for 45 minutes, you know, and you lose, you get chance at halftime. So I literally had to sprint into the other side of the pitch, grab the bag, give the photographer a bit of a nudge and say, please don't do that to my boards. And, and then we had another one in Germany. And th- this, was, this was even crazier where...
0: That was during the World it, Cup, wasn't
1: it? D- during the World yeah. Cup in 2006, yeah. And I had the same role in, in Kaiserslautern Stadium in, in Germany. And we had a we had a local guy in the stadium. He was used to kind of, you know... He was kind of the, the facilities manager for the league matches. And what they used to do for the league matches when FC Kaiserslautern would be playing, they'd put out all these massive buckets full of water all around the pitch and they'd have sponges in them. And it'd be really so... You know, if the players needed to kind of cool themselves down when they're playing, you know, they'd be able to they'd be able to do that. But of course, no one had told this poor fella that when it's an international tournament, like things are a bit different and you don't you don't do that. So just before yeah, the national anthem is playing and the teams have lined up and it's just before kickoff. And I suddenly see about 15 buckets positioned all in front of the perimeter boards all around the stadium. And I nearly, yeah, I nearly died. And I, I literally had to get on the radio, get one of the guys. And and now we wouldn't normally be allowed to do this, but we, we kind of had to just do it. We had to run around the stadium, get all the buckets, pour out the water, grab the sponges and jump over the boards and get get out of the way of the TV camera. And you're trying to do all of this without getting on TV. You know, you don't want to see someone in a FIFA uniform running around. Yeah. So, um, mad story. Yeah,
0: I think it's amazing. It's just the detail. People don't notice that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: The and the, there's so much that goes on, you yeah. know, but to get a match ready. And that that's what I love is I love all the behind the scenes stuff that, that nobody knows about. And then the odd time you'd be on telly, you know, I remember getting a, getting a text message once during, during your 2004. Call, I can see you. I can see you over in the corner on your radio.
0: So you went then from you know, UEFA formula one didn't you
1: i went to f1 yeah and and i've had two roles in f1 actually i i worked for for the formula one group themselves so literally for bernie and uh, and and his group and that's then, in geneva that was in geneva and then i yeah. moved to what, what brought us to zoog actually was i moved to work for shell and shell is a is a partner of the ferrari team and i was managing that partnership for shell the most interesting times uh, were we're not working for F1 themselves but actually working with a team working with Ferrari and and actually getting to work with so within 5 years I managed to work with four world champion drivers you know mm. there was Fernando Alonso Felipe Massa Kimi Raikkonen and Sebastian Vettel and and again this is this is a lot of people's dream job you know I'm, I'm not an F1 fan I have to be <laughs> honest but I think I think it is an incredible sport, and there's, inc- there's a, you know, there's a real passion for for people who are F one fans, um, and and it's it's fascinating how it works. You know, you you can win a race by one hundredth of a second, and there's so many factors that can lead to you having that edge of that one hundredth of a second, and it's 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 a lot about technology, which is great.
0: So when you're when you're representing Shell in Formula One. You're right down that level, so they, they have a person in as part of the team, practically to represent Shell. Is that the
1: well? So so there were there was a few of us. So mm-hmm. I was I was basically the commercial person okay. managing the, the the commercial side of the partnership. You weren't and putting petrol
0: I- into the car then.
1: <laughs> well, actually, one of, one of my colleagues was, so, really? so I, I had a couple of colleagues. So, so we, we would provide the fuel and the oil for the car. And mm. it's not just about, you know, rocking up with a delivery and, you know, the, the, the fuel in a barrel and, and the oil in, in a drum. It's, it's actually you're developing race fuels and race lubricants, you know, and you're, you're introducing, you know, you could introduce four or five new race fuels and lubricants during a season you know, wow. a season which goes from March to November.
0: That there's and teams of people working on it all the time. And we, we
1: we would have, we would have up to by 25 fuel scientists and engineers in the background working on developing all these fuels and oils. But on the ground at the race, then you have, um, you have a team of uh, two to three people. And what they have to do is, is it's a lot of quality control. It's making sure that, you know, the fuels and the oils aren't contaminated and that, You know, the the testing the oils can tell you about what's going on in the engine before the engineers even know, you know, so we'd have a really sophisticated lab in the back of the Ferrari garage. And what we're doing is we're, we're able to tell the Ferrari engineers what's going on in the car, you know, from what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it was, again, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, but a lot of amazing times where you're you're actually in the garage during the race. You know, you're you're part of all that excitement. You're under the podium when the Ferrari team wins. You know, you're celebrating your driver. It's it's a crazy world of, you know, of of people, this traveling circus that travels the world pretty much nonstop from March to November um, and goes to four continents. And so does
0: every is it like a traveling circus? Then does everybody know everybody? And it's
1: absolutely, and you all hang out with each other. From everybody knows everybody in F one, and it's it's like a little, it's like any little community. You get all the gossip and you get all the scandals and all the you know who who got off with who. At, at the celebration and Sunday night of the last yeah. race, um, it's yeah, it's it, it's a it's a small community. I I I have to say I loved it, but I also could see the dysfunction in it all as well.
0: Um, it's a mad bubble.
1: I had when I started my mad F one travel. I had just got married, so I was probably the most settled I've ever been. You know, yeah. I think if I was in F one in my twenties in my single days, I'd probably self destructed because. There's so much temptation. It's it's sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, on speed. Yeah, I can <laughs> um, imagine. But, but I, I was just, I was newly married and um, and uh, very um, in, in a very stable part of my life. So yeah. I, I took part in a bit of the fun, but not a lot, I have yeah. to say.
0: But is it sort of, because the people around it, it's such a glamorous sport, fashion and billionaires. So it must have a mad... Existence.
1: there's a bit of that there's, there's also I suppose the fact that you need to but again it, it's it's a calling for most people most people are incredibly passionate you'd have to be to work in F1 because you have no life okay. you've no family life and a lot of people have you know a lot of people are divorced um or you know their their relationships are are broken up because of their their commitment to F1 so it's it's kind of a work hard play hard as well you know people have to let off steam and and especially if you've won a race, um, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of celebrations. But there's a huge amount of glamour there as well. Um, but but not, not the same as the old days. So most of the drivers are fairly sensible, you know. Um, they're, they're, they're really, they're elite athletes. And they, you know, they really, you have to do an incredible amount of, um, of training. You have to have, a, a, you know, world-class levels of fitness to be a fun driver and to do it well um but everyone around them does the partying for them <laughs>
0: <laughs> i can imagine and is there, is there different you know when you're going from did you have a preference like is there you know like monaco or melbourne or is there like does yeah. every place have its own little its own sort of um what's the word its own unique characteristics
1: yeah absolutely and and most most people will agree on what their favourite circuits are in F one, right? It's definitely not Monaco. It's not. <laughs> it is not Monaco. Monaco is one of the one of the races that just drives everybody crazy because usually, you know, you have you have the most high level um, visitors and guests and everything in Monaco. The stress levels are really high. It's a street circuit, and it's really it's really hard to get anything done in Monaco because. The whole of of you know Monaco is built into a hillside. It's it's kind of down by the water, but it's on a hill, and so most of the roads are closed because of the circuit. So trying to get anything done, trying to trying to organise an event in Monaco is a nightmare. You, you know even you, you can't drive anywhere. So we you know you have a forty minute walk to get into the track every morning, or you can take a little water taxi, but it's 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 quite challenging. Now yes, there there's the odd party on a yacht that's a bit of crack, you know, and there's a lot of celebrities. But when you're working, it's really challenging. So I think the, 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 the favorite circuits, I would say Monaco is probably a favorite circuit of the drivers to drive because it's, it's technically really challenging. The drivers will, will yeah, they, they like Monaco. It's very technical, very tricky. But if you've ever watched the Monaco Grand Prix, you can't pass. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to pass. So it's not one of those circuits where, you, you know, the outcome can be really surprising unless there's a crash or something. The ones that the drivers love are, they tend to be some of the really older circuits like Suzuka or Belgium. Um, and again, it's, it's very technically challenging, but also there are opportunities to pass, there are opportunities to change the outcome of a race. And then the people, so the entourage in F1, the, the circuits that tend to be preferred are what are called the street circuits. So this would be Melbourne or this would be Canada, uh, Montreal, um, Singapore you know these th- because a street circuit is just so special because you're right in the center of a city you know and you have such an amazing atmosphere you're usually walking to the track you don't have to drive you know th- you feel the atmosphere in the city and it just means your, your hotel is somewhere centrally located you're you can go out at night and celebrate and then for me somewhere one, one of the worst places to stay is Suzuka in Japan mm-hmm. because it's a it's it's a horrible gray industrial town and even though like there's loads of space there you stay in a hotel that is I swear to god you couldn't swing a cat in it. like I had I had a big suitcase that I couldn't put flat in my room because because there wasn't enough floor space so you literally you're in like a capsule it's mm. like it's it, like you'd have more space in a caravan um so so it's funny you know the, the places that you think might be really glamorous are often not <laughs>
0: and is it so you're the way way you've been talking there about UEFA and Formula One it's a serious adrenaline so you're just yeah those jobs it is like particularly the Formula One I would say because you're going from it's massive high. it's high energy getting ready for the race and then it's the high of it being over they move on to the next place
1: yeah it's true actually it's it's, and that's events in general you know because I was Mm. I was in I suppose I was in events for about 20 years and it's it is. It's it's highs and lows, and maybe that's part of my personality as well. Is that I enjoy that that mad adrenaline buzz, you know? Do you
0: get used to it? Do you-
1: yeah, yeah, you do. Now I have to say, it's for me, it's it's you can only really do that in your twenties and thirties. You know, I did it a bit into my forties. I think my my role now working in Africa it's a little bit different because. It's 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 a bit more stable. There's still loads of travel, but when I travel, you know, I'm not working on events. I'm working fairly regular hours, um, and it's yeah. So so it's a bit easier. Yeah. But you see people in F1, and they're they're still doing it into their sixties, you know, seventies.
0: What recommendations would you give for you know the best tracks to go to as a fan?
1: Yeah, in terms of, um, if, in, in, I suppose, if people are looking for tips for F1 and mm-hmm. and circuits and races. I would say if you're going to go to any race, right, go to Belgium for lots of reasons. The tickets are reasonably priced. It's easy to get to. You can get accommodation, you know, within an hour of the track. And it's fairly, fairly reasonably priced. It's as a spectator. It's an amazing, amazing circuit. Um, and also it's, it's usually, there's usually a lot of excitement, you know, in, in Belgium. So I, that's, that would be a tip I would give if anyone, if anyone is a fan and looking, looking to go somewhere.
0: You've worked with some of the top drivers in the world. What are they like?
1: The drivers are all, they're all like kids. You know, they're, I remember, remember Stefano Domenicali talking to me once. Um, he, he used to be the, the team principal of Ferrari. And he said, he said, Annie, I see them like teenage boys. You know, he said, I'm like their father. I, I might be the team principal, but I'm like their father. And these guys have been racing and karting since probably they were seven or eight years old. They're they're then thrown into maybe some of the feeder series for F1. And they a lot of them are in F1 by the time they're 18 or 19. So he said, I, I have to not just be... know their team principal i almost have to be their father i have to you know sometimes they get a bit pissed off and the toys come out of the pram or they sulk or or you know and i have to manage all of these moods of these kids to make sure i get the best out of them and i thought that was really interesting like they're 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 a world champion and they're world famous and they have you know thousands of fans screaming their names but actually they need to be managed like almost like a child
0: because They've probably been doing that uh, from their early teens they're probably being brought to races, given everything all their schedules well, have been and, organized and, well and from...
1: they they haven't had normal childhoods because mo you know to get to that level you've had to devote you' you know from the age of six or seven you you will have been racing nonstop you know yeah. um so so it's it's again you you're you're dealing with very interesting personalities who who haven't had normal lives at all. <laughs>
0: And did that come across? Did you notice that when you were there?
1: You yeah. Yeah. And they're like, so I've worked with all four of those Ferrari drivers and they're all very different. Um, I would say the, the, genuinely the nicest and kindest of them all is Felipe Massa. He's, um, you know, Brazilian driver, really, really nice and kind. One of the most difficult and challenging is Fernando Alonso. Um, bit, loved his mind games, loved annoying you, loved, kind of, you know, being being difficult when when you're doing events with him. Um, Kimmy absolute kind of so authentic and, and genuine, but won't do anything he doesn't want to do. And um, good story about Kimmy that that I can tell you is uh, this this didn't happen to me, but this poor journalist was interviewing Kimmy many years ago. And it was when Michael Schumacher first left F1 before he came back again with Mercedes. And it was the brazil grand prix the 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 end of the brazil grand prix michael's last race and they decided to do a tribute to michael and they got all the drivers um they they basically arranged that all the drivers would come together for a photo with michael on the starting grid at the end of the race and this journalist she realized that kimmy actually hadn't been there for the um for the photo and so she she was interviewing him you know about an hour later or whatever and she said Kimmy." Um, what happened? You know, you missed you missed the tribute to Michael. You weren't in the photo. And Kimmy, classic Kimmy, responds and goes, yes, I had to take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is like, this is what I was dealing with when we would do PR events or whatever with Kimmy, you know. But, but I have to be honest, he was, he was very straightforward. Um, and then Seb, Sebastian Vettel. Um, the first time I ever did an event with Seb, I, this really endeared him to me. He came out of his hotel and I was waiting to pick him up and bring him, you know, to to the event we were delivering and walked up to me, shook my hand and said, hi, I'm Sebastian. And I thought, you know what? Everybody knows who you are. You're a seven times world champion. But I really appreciate the fact that you acknowledge me. You're human. You know, we got into the car chatting away, asking me about Ireland and I just, you know, that that really endears you when you have to work with these guys, and they can choose to be an arse or they can choose to be nice. That really endeared them to me.
0: You were with Shell, so then you moved yeah. areas in Shell. That's a I, tradition in Shell, isn't it? You 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 move. Well, every- it's
1: it's like any it's like any big global company. You know, you see it a lot with with like the Procter and Gamble's and the Unilevers and and lots of big global companies. We're we're a company with a hundred thousand employees. And so if you want to keep people fresh and keep people, you know, with career progression, you move everyone every four years or so. So I actually did five years in my Ferrari role, which was a bit longer than planned. And then I moved and, and the first time in 20 years, I was working in a role that wasn't sports marketing. So it's it's a commercial role and it's managing a partnership in Africa, as as I mentioned, across yeah. across 15 countries.
0: So that must be Um, brilliant for someone who who loves travel.
1: Yeah. To go
0: to Africa. So how many? Well, um, and I
1: was I already loved Africa. I think before before that role, we we did our honeymoon in Malawi. um, and I'd already, I think I'd already traveled to maybe 10, 12 countries before I did this role. Okay. And um and now that's gone up, I think, to about 20. Um and yeah, huge fan of Africa, I have to say. Um it's just so different. It's so different. And, and actually, you know, my, my African colleagues have killed me for saying Africa, because it's mm-hmm. like saying Europe, you know, there's, there's over 50 countries, and there's so many different cultures and different tribes. And, you know, you'll have, you'll have somebody in Kenya will tell you South Africa is not Africa, you know, and there, there's all kinds of rivalries and everything. Um I think, what is it about Africa? It's, every country is so different um, people people are i, I I'll, I'll make a few generalizations um, people tend to be much more positive and much less cynical than than we europeans i find yeah. um, much happier as well and and regardless of, of of what they have or what what kind of level they're at um, a little bit like ireland in the 50s religion is very very strong and plays a major part in everyone's life you know so so religion is is a really it plays a major role in everyone's life and it's sometimes it's christianity it's it's muslim religion it's, lots of different religions what else about africa i suppose it is there's there's so much diversity there you know it's it's in terms of landscape in terms of of, of mm-hmm. things you do the kinds of people you meet um so how is yeah, it working I, it, there
0: like is it, is it very different working
1: it's, in europe versus Africa? It, again there's a lot there's a lot of similarities to ireland or, is there or, really? or, or the ireland that i would have known you know in terms yeah. of in most countries if someone says yeah so i'll see you there at 10 o'clock and this could be a meeting or this could be you know this could be something really serious that you have to do 10 o'clock could mean any time before 11, you know, it'd be like, you know, I remember from, from, you know, when I was a, a teenager in Ireland, you, you meet at the pub, you know, I, I see you there at nine o'clock and it could be any time after. it hasn't changed. So, so, so I find that that, that is quite difficult to get used to, especially living in Switzerland, because, you know, in Switzerland, if it's 10 o'clock, you turn up at a minute to 10, you know, and not, not a minute later. <laughs> work in there as well. Yeah. I mean you don't you would never jump into a meeting or a call or anything without without first of all saying, Oh Jesus, how's your how's your mother's cousin's uncle? And oh is the dog better? I heard you know you told me last week the dog wasn't having and you literally have ten minutes of chat. You know so that's and, great.
0: So that, that's if, where that's where an Irish person really yeah. must connect.
1: And so so the American way of jumping straight in and going, right, let's get down to business, you know, that's that's actually considered really You know, really rude. Yeah, (laughs) and and I I would be used to the American way of working. You know, so I've had to adapt a lot to to kind of, you know, just just taking the personal personal touch. You know, um, Mm. and making making sure that that's important.
0: And are there particular countries that are in your heart then in Africa that you'd recommend?
1: yeah i mean it it changes all the time because every time i go to a country and spend some time there it becomes my new favorite but actually i at the moment the one i would hugely recommend to anyone is uganda Um, and ian and i were really lucky i about two years ago i had a trip uh, there and it it coincided with being it happened just before easter and so we decided after my trip that ian would fly out and we did we did a two-week tour of uganda and it's definitely one of my favorite countries. The people are absolutely gorgeous, like gorgeous, warm, funny, friendly, beautiful people. Um, and, and everywhere we went you know we, we we were welcomed now again when you get into the countryside you're you're the only white person for miles around you know and and actually i I've, I've gotten very used to being being the only white person so you you also have to be very you have to be very careful and you have to kind of you have to make sure you don't have that savior complex as well that 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 a lot of europeans have when they go to africa and and, and try and try and just behave normally you know yeah. um but what else about Uganda? I love the food. Um, we, we we got to try a lot of local food. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, funnily enough, whenever I travel to Africa and I'm hosted, you know, or, or we go out for dinner with, with my colleagues, they always seem to want to bring me to places with burgers and pizzas and... Oh you know kind of western places where, where probably where a lot of the expats go because they you know they want western food and yeah. so after a while I had to say to them lads, please you know will you bring me somewhere local I, I really don't want a burger or a pizza when I come to you know Ghana or Namibia or wherever mm. <laughs> um but the, the local food in Uganda we absolutely loved as well and did and you we, go we
0: see got... the is that where the gorillas? did you go see them yes the
1: in the yeah yeah I was coming to that.
0: Well, I'm just yeah. I'm eager because that's all. I, when I hear Uganda, I'm,
1: I'm no, no, not at
0: all. So, it's just when I hear Uganda, yeah. I, I just think gorillas.
1: The most amazing, one of the most amazing experiences of my life was was actually going to see the gorillas, and this is this is in a place called Bwindi in in southwest Uganda. It's it's almost on the border with Rwanda, and so so most of the the, the mountain gorillas that that are surviving, you know, in the world are in in Rwanda, Uganda, and um, DRC, Democratic Republic Congo. Safest place to see them, I think, is Uganda. And I'd say also one of the best managed and the cheapest, because in Uganda, the government runs the programme. So the money you pay goes back into the government running it. In Rwanda, I know they recently sold the rights to a private American company, and I think it's twice the price, you know, to, to go and see them. And DRC, I wouldn't recommend at the moment because it's quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go see the gorillas, go in Uganda. You have to book a long time in advance because they um, they only take a limited number of people, you know. And, and what they're doing is they take you, you're you're put into groups and you're basically trekking for a few hours through proper tropical jungle. You know, um, so, so so mad stuff like you, you they, they give you all this advice that you have to seal your trousers in your socks and, you know, you're, you're tuck into your waistbands because there's all these fire ants that you're walking through the jungle and and they literally can get inside your clothes. And then once once they're inside, you're done, you know, you're, you're going to be eaten alive by fire ants. Um, and you're, you know it's really, really humid. It's proper tropical humid jungle, and you've got you've got guides with machetes and guns, and sometimes they're actually breaking through, you know, the, the dense jungle with machetes. But really well managed, and so so you're you're basically tracking and climbing for a few hours, and they they're on radios, and they're they're basically following, you know, a family of gorillas, and the gorillas they're already in some way acclimatized to humans so you know they, they they make sure it's fairly safe for you but it's it's just the most incredible experience in the world and my first contact with a gorilla it was it was hilarious because there were there were all these eager beavers in the group you know so there's a group of about eight of us and me and ian so so ian and i said look we'll, we'll just hang out at the back and we'll we'll see them when we see them and we had, the, we had a guide with a gun behind us at one point, And then she, she moved up to the front. So there's just Ian and I at the back. And at one point, we're just we're wandering along. And we, the group is a fair bit ahead of us. And I heard this crunching behind me. Like I heard something moving. And I thought, oh, maybe the guide is back behind me. And I turned around. And no word of a lie. There was a three-meter-high silverback gorilla about five meters behind me. And he was just standing there looking at me. And I was like, Ian, Ian, Jesus, gorilla. <laughs> and he's standing there. And suddenly then the guides below us became aware that he was there. So I got out. I got out my camera and I started videoing. And then hilariously, he lets out this fart that goes on for about 25 seconds. It's literally like... <laughs> non-stop and i caught it all in video and i'm pissing myself laughing going i thought this would be this this kind of spiritual yeah. moment with this gorilla <laughs> and all he does cuz apparently they fart constantly because they they eat vegetation all the time so um so, and then he decided he wanted to walk down past us. And you're not allowed to get too close to them. Um, not, not because it's dangerous for you, but because it's dangerous for them. Because gorillas can get, can catch the flu, colds, you know, even COVID, actually. They can get respiratory illnesses and catch them from humans because they're so close to us. So, um, so he's literally walking and he's about to walk on top of me, you know, regardless of whether I'm in his way or not. And the guide is saying, get out of the way, get out of the way, he's coming down. So he literally walks right by me, you know, and it was just the most incredible experience. And then we discovered this, this whole family of gorillas and the little babies swinging in the trees, but absolutely incredible experience. And they're, they're very gentle. They're very
0: human-like.
1: They're they're very human-like. I mean, they have facial expressions, you know, and. And you like I got so close to this fella and, you know, I could have sworn he was talking to me. He was probably farting to you know, on purpose just to tell me you know, this is what I think of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there any other spot then in our countries, say in Africa? You've been so many. You say you've been to 20. So what's the first one that comes oh, into your head? If I, <clears throat> so I had Uganda. I mentioned Malawi. So one more that what's the first one that comes into your head
1: the first one comes into my head is probably because it's the most recent one I visited is Namibia. Um, Mm. And uh, Namibia absolutely stunning country. I mean, Namibia has um, it's, it's, it's kind of where the desert meets the sea, you know, you've heard of the Namib desert. And um, I, I got to spend some time by the coast. I added on a few days on my last trip and got to spend some time by the coast. It's a place called Swakopmund. And, um, I I went into the desert, had a few activities there, but it's it's just it's you you have these like 60, 70 meter sand dunes right by the Atlantic Ocean. Um, Absolutely nuts and really amazing diversity of wildlife there. You know, you can you can do some amazing trips. So I I would definitely recommend Namibia if you've never been.
0: And what about um, safaris? Do you like them or not? Or Have you done loads of them or
1: I've done loads of them and I love them. I absolutely love them. Yeah. 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 I never get bored. Um, I, there's another one I'd recommend, which is uh, again, I added on a few days to a trip in South Africa, um, about two years ago and I stayed in a tree house in just outside Kruger park. And so you're literally sleeping in a tree, you know, and it's just this little, little wooden construction with a bed in it. Uh Um, and that is an incredible experience and you you go to sleep and, and it's like, it's like white noise in the background. You hear all the bullfrogs and all the animals and everything. And I woke up in the morning and there was there was a herd of buffalo right below my my treehouse. And then like a little bit, then suddenly they ran off. And I was like, why are they running off a lion right below? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so uh, wow. it's, it's, and it's, it's kind of slightly dangerous, but I kind of like that as well. I like that yeah. little, bit, little edge of danger. So uh, i would always uh, recommend safaris as well and and again i would recommend responsible travel because because you know it's you, you know that your money has been put to good use mm.
0: you remind me we went to uh, tanzania for our honeymoon and we went on three different oh,
1: wow we went to
0: three different types but the one i really loved was what it was a it was a tent and it was by a river and all the animals would come up you know in the in, for sunset up to the river And that was my favourite. So if I ever go again, I would love to just go somewhere and hang out there because I wasn't too into the getting into the van at the crack of dawn, driving around, finding animals. I much preferred (laughs) just going to a spot and staying there and letting the animals come and go. So
1: and they come to you. Yeah.
0: And seem more natural, you know, chasing around, trying to take off animals. (laughs) I wasn't up for that, especially early in the morning. (laughs) on our honeymoon but i would read that's the one i loved and that's what i'd go back to so something like that where you just chill and you're in a nice spot and then the animals you'll be in the middle of them in a tent or treehouse or whatever
1: absolutely yeah Mm.
0: so what really comes across from this talk is that your love of travel obviously and you're lucky because your job gets you to do all that travel. So, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. There's one question, which is Emer's question, which I'd have to ask you. So important. You know Emer very well. So, it is if you take four deep breaths and think of your happy place anywhere in the world, in your travels or at home, wherever, where would that be and why?
1: it's a really good question and it changes all the time <laughs> even even thinking about the answer to this i've so many different answers but i i think if it's winter it would always be up a mountain up a snowy mountain somewhere and it would be skiing probably skiing backcountry um so i would say verbier is probably my favorite place for for that you know it's mm-hmm. just pure happiness when you when you discover a patch of virgin snow that no one else has skied And yeah, there's, there's nobody around and you're the first person to ski down that. Um, In summer, it's also going to be a mountain and it's at the moment, it will definitely be a mountain in Switzerland and it's probably Mount Rigi, which is, which is a mountain near where we live. And you get to the top of that and you just look out over about four different, four lakes and you're looking out over about, you know, five counties and it's just on a, on a clear day, it's exquisite and it's, it's kind of my happy place. So, yeah.
0: I've seen some great photos of yours from your walks up the mountains and it's spectacular because people think of um, the Alps for, you know, skiing, but in summertime, it is oh, amazing. it's amazing.
1: Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So if anyone wants to come and visit, they're very <laughs> welcome. Once, once times are a bit safer.
0: I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple podcast. So a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergo. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergo.